Good afternoon. This is Greg Lois. Thank you for joining me for our presentation on independent medical evaluations in New York. This presentation has been extensively reworked and updated to take advantage of the fact that the New York uh, State Legislature updated uh, both our state statute as well as many attendant regulations regarding uh, independent medical evaluations in this state. A lot of the information I'm providing you today is going to be based on draft uh, disability duration guidelines, which were also discussed in a uh, webinar presented by this firm on October 2nd, and a result of uh, some new requirements and regulations that are going to take place and start affecting claims after January 1, 2018. If you're here today, it's because uh, you are an attendee at our regular webinar series. Uh, it is always the third Monday of the month, and on the fourth Monday of the month, we have a webinar series in New Jersey. Uh, this Monday, so a week from today, I'll be welcoming Dr. Jennifer Yanow, who is a New Jersey pain management physician, to do a presentation on independent medical examinations and second opinion examinations in New Jersey. That's on October 23, 2017. Uh, please join us for of course, if you miss a webinar, no fear. All of the webinar uh, uh, videos are available on our firm website. There are also audio-only versions available as a podcast for a download through iTunes. Um, just please remember that these webinars are only a small amount of the overall outreach that this firm does. Um, we do have handbooks. Those handbooks come out typically uh, every October or November this year due to the amount of changes to our statute and regulations. Our handbooks will be coming out in the beginning of November. Uh, please request one from us if you um, would like one. Uh, also, there are many articles on our website that are available and, of course, our firm newsletter. All right, um, today's presentation on IMEs is gonna take into account the fact that the legislature extensively changed our workers' compensation law in April of 2017. Uh, one of the ways that the legislature changed uh, significantly uh, is the requirement that the board adopt new guidelines for independent medical evaluators to use when evaluate, evaluating permanent disability uh, for uh, uh, disabled claimants. Now, that's important because today when we talk about independent medical evaluations, the evaluators beginning in January of 2018 are going to be using a new standard for the determination of scheduled loss of use medical impairments. And scheduled loss of use medical impairments, if you missed our webinar earlier this month, are hands like hands, finger, feet, toes, uh, knees, hips, shoulders, elbows, ankles, feet, etc. cetera. Uh, those injuries are going to be subject to new guidelines. We provided extensive um, training on that. Please refer to our webinar presentation and the handout materials from October 2nd. And the reason the board 
uh, was forced to adopt new guidelines and is in the process of adopting new guidelines for determining impairment because there has been a massive disparity in findings in, in regards to scheduled loss of use in which claimants have really been receiving windfall awards. Uh, that's because the method of determining permanent residual impairment, and this is what the IME physician will be doing on our behalf, the guidelines they're following were resulting in high scheduled loss of use percentages, which multiplied by an average weekly wage replacement, which has more than doubled since 2007, has led to giant awards. In fact, the state of New York, reviewing its own scheduled loss of use payments in New York, learned that 85% of the amount of money paid in awards by the state of New York was paid to claimants who lost two weeks or less of lost time. That's crazy. Uh, it means that these claimants are being highly compensated for injuries that have really very little impact on their actual workability. So the board has adopted new draft guidelines for IME physicians in the state of New York to use when evaluating permanent residual disability. I'm gonna begin at the beginning, and that is what is an IME? What does it stand for? It stands for independent medical evaluation or independent medical examination. These are most typically obtained by employers and carriers in either attempting to control uh, lost time, attempting to find the petitioner or claimant has reached maximum medical improvement, or attempting to determine what the uh, permanent medical impairment is. In New York, IMEs are relied upon typically to make a finding of MMI. Uh, it is rare for a claimant's treating physician to voluntarily find that the claimant no longer would benefit from their additional medical care. Uh, there just is a sort of uh, uh, a culture in New York where doctors never seem to release patients and everybody never gets any better. Oftentimes, carriers and employers are, are using IMEs to litigate or prepare uh, factual defenses on the, on the issue of maximum medical impairment. IMEs can also be used to dispute body parts or to dispute that a new consequential body part should not be part of the workers' compensation case. Uh, further, uh, when it's time to challenge the need for additional care or unauthorized care, an uh, IME is required. All right, uh, New York has a very specific forms and requirements in order for the carrier to set an IME. There are no surprise IMEs, no quick IMEs, no IMEs without notice to claimant's counsel, and all IME reports are copied to all parties at the same time. So there's really no opportunity from the defense or carrier side um, to fix or address or try to uh, change the IME physician's opinion, uh, except through the use of addendum reports, which I'll talk to you about that uh, later. I am often asked by my clients to provide recommendations for IME physicians, and we are very willing to do that in this state. I can tell you that uh, as a defense litigator for 17 years, my chief consideration when I am looking at a uh, what IME physician to recommend are the IME physician's qualifications and my experience with that physician. And typically this means I am looking for a board certified physician, uh, someone who currently has admitting privileges or is currently in private practice and seeing patients because we think that provides a lot of validity and credibility to the uh, evaluating physician's opinion. Uh, I am interested in my experience with that IME physician. 
Have I had this person on the stand before? Has she or he stood up well to cross-examination? Have they kept to the four corners of their report? Have they avoided responding to hypothetical questions? Do they respond to my direction when I am protecting them on cross-examination? All of those things are considered by us when we're making IME recommendations. But we think that in your uh, litigated case, you should be asking defense counsel uh, for IME recommendations. And the other interesting thing to consider is that physicians uh, and judges uh, develop uh, relationships over time. And that could be uh, this one particular judge find, seems to find this IME doctor credible, or more typically, this uh, particular judge has expressed to us in either prior opinions that we've obtained or just hearing this judge talk in their courtroom and how they've ruled in similar cases that they don't like this IME physician and they're not going to find their opinion credible. Um, so oftentimes reaching out to defense counsel so that we can tell you, hey, this uh, judge is more or less likely predisposed to find this IME physician credible, that's a really great way to use defense counsel. Now, can defense counsel schedule IMEs? Yes, we can. Um, more typically, we write cover letters for uh, the risk professional in uh, to provide to the IME physician. A little bit of a caveat or warning here is that everything that we provide to our IME physician is going to be copied to our adversary uh, and of course to the court. And so for those reasons, we wanna be very careful, very accurate, very clear, very unambiguous, and very careful in our uh, correspondence to the IME physician. The IME physician is allowed to rely upon the information provided in that cover letter, as well as the medical reports, the statement of complaints given by the claimant, and then of course their review of the medical records. Um, but we want to make sure that everything we put into our letter to that physician is entirely correct and uh, valid and verifiable by reference to documentation that we can provide that physician. We don't want to give our adversary grounds or opportunity to dispute the validity of our IME because it may have been based on persuasive or limited or very selected information provided by the defense. However, we're always happy to prepare and draft uh, cover letters. Uh, sometimes the cover letter is used in its entirety or selections are used by the risk professional, but again, that's a very good use of defense counsel in a litigated case. Um, so to the IME doctor, can you send them uh, cover letters? Yep. Can you send them surveillance videos? Yes. Can you send them non-medical documents? Yes. Uh, can you call the physician in advance of the IME to prepare them? No, please do not do that. That's considered undue influence. Uh, I just want to address the fact that we can send them things that are not purely medical. Uh, it is absolutely fine to send an IME doctor a job description to let them understand what are the actual contours and requirements of this claimant's actual job or work situation. Absolutely fine, absolutely uh, appropriate. And yes, you can send surveillance videos, and those could be both covert surveillance videos that we've obtained or, or self-surveillance. A lot of these claimants place themselves under surveillance by posting videos and images of themselves to things like Instagram or Facebook. Can that be provided to the physician? Yes, it can. My warning, though, is that it will lose all surprise value if later used in the case. If it's been provided to our physician uh, with our cover letter and the medical narratives that are assembled and sent to that physician, well, certainly it's going to be copied to all parties, and therefore the, the surprise value or the gotcha value of covert surveillance will be uh, diminished. Now, the board has uh, three essential forms that are required 
uh, to set up an IME. There's an IME 5 form. This is essentially a notice to the claimant, hey, uh, you're getting an IME that must be provided to the, to the claimant seven days prior to the evaluation. Of course, that seven-day notice requirement can be waived by stipulation or agreement of the parties. Um, next, IME 3, that goes to the um, physician and includes uh, a reference to all the medical records and other documentation. And then finally, the IME physician must issue their IME-4 report. This is essentially their narrative report with all of their uh, findings uh, ten, within 10 days of the evaluation. That must be copied to all parties by the same method and at the same time. This means that as the defense, we do not get a copy of our IME report before our adversary does. When we get a report where we disagree strongly with the conclusions uh, or the findings of the evaluating physician and there needs to be some sort of clarification, we can request an addendum report. All right, uh, one of our big challenges in the state of New York is, uh, or defending cases in the state of New York, is that there are many, many picayune, uh, ever-changing uh, regulations regarding uh, how the IME doctor uh, can perform their evaluation and then how they serve and are served with documents regarding that evaluations. And most typically, where we see some problems are where that IME doctor has issued an opinion, sent it to defense counsel, sent it to the carrier or the self-insured, sent it to the adversarial counsel, sent it to the claimant, but maybe did not send it to a treating physician. Uh, and a treating physician in this state is, quote, any provider or practitioner who has primary responsibility for treating the claimant for injury or illness, and then there is some subsequent, uh, subsequent uh, clarification of that that says within six months of the IME. So we're not going back and, and having to serve this IME report on every physician who ever, who ever saw them, uh, but we do have to serve it on all of their attending physicians for the last six months. Now this cuts both ways. Uh, our adversaries will often now get IMEs on the issue of scheduled loss of use and permanent residual disability. These reports are typically turned in on a C-4.3 form, and I argue that if the person completing the uh, C-4.3 form is not the regular attending physician, if it's anybody other than the attending physician, I argue that they have to fulfill all of the service requirements that our doctor would for the same IME report. That's something to keep in your back pocket as a way of precluding or excluding uh, opinions obtained by petitioners or claimants expert physicians. All right, IMEs are gonna change. And in fact, this entire year, January uh, coming up, January 2018, the board is going to be looking at the IME process and they are required to present a report. This is uh, pursuant to the statutory change which took place uh, in April of 2017. They are required to present a report uh, considering, quote, new methods of assigning independent medical examinations, such as through rotating providers or panels, statewide networks or other arrangements, close quote. So we're gonna see this year a lot of interest by the board and a lot of follow-up by the board looking into our IME process. Um, I think the board or maybe the legislature when they passed this regulation in April forgot the fact that the board already has uh, an entire published chart of what they're calling IPEs, impartial expert evaluators. Um, and that, that already exists, it's rarely used. Sometimes they're used by uh, judges in litigated cases as a tiebreaker. So whether or not the board needs to have new methods of assigning IMEs and new provider panels, et cetera, I don't think so. We already have this. All right, 
also new uh, this year for scheduled loss of use examinations uh, will be the new SLU-1 form. Uh, the claimant must complete this intake form and sign the intake form when they go to their evaluating physician and when they go to our evaluating physician. Now, the board has not published the draft scheduled loss of use-1 form to be completed by all claimants when they are going to be examined. Um, but the new regulations do state that, quote, the claimant must cooperate at all times and must accurately and truthfully complete any questionnaire or intake sheets, close quote, that are provided by the IME physician. This is very useful for us uh, for two reasons. First, I absolutely believe that claimants counsel are going to fill out the SLU-1 forms with claimants in their offices before they send them to our IME examinations. And so I expect a lot of vague answers, a lot of elusive answers, and perhaps even some litigations over what constitutes a fully cooperative SLU-1 form. But the regulations now state that the claimant must complete any questionnaire that's provided to us, to the claimant by the evaluating physician. This is great for us. Intake sheets are often very useful places for us to find out information from the claimant, and they can be traps for the claimant who's a fraud because uh, the intake sheets where the claimant says, no, I've never been hurt before. Uh, no, I've I haven't been hurt since. Uh, no, I'm not working, and then signs it often become the basis for us to raise a 114A fraud violation claim against the claimant. So I think this is very useful and this is something for us to work on with our IME physicians and panel providers uh, and absolutely develop and use uh, very extensive and very useful intake forms because it is now in the new regulation. Um, the other uh, uh, changes are that the out-of-state IME doctors can perform IMEs on New York claimants. And of course, as long as they've used the proper forms and follow our SLU guidelines, so that's great. Uh, now, the uh, uh, new regulations also state that cross-examination is not allowed of the evaluating physician unless there's an issue. Uh, however, we do expect that the issue will be the nature and extent of permanent residual impairment as found by the physician and whether they followed the actual medical treatment, I'm sorry, disability duration guidelines in arriving at their finding on permanent residual disability. Um, now, I also think it's very important that the board put a little teeth into the uh, uh, new regulations, which state that the board may decline to issue a scheduled loss of use award upon a finding that the claimant failed to cooperate with the medical examination, which includes failure to accurately complete the SLU intake form, which is referenced, by, by the way, in the regulations as the SLU-1. Again, uh, that has not been um, promulgated. I haven't seen a copy of or draft of the SLU-1 form yet. Uh, but uh, the fact that the board's saying, if you don't cooperate and don't complete your SLU-1 form, uh, we don't have to find that you have a scheduled loss of use. That's great. That gives the teeth uh, to the carrier and to the independent medical evaluator in getting a complete medical history, a complete narrative from the claimant. So we think that's great. All right. IME doctors must follow the disability duration guidelines in assessing permanent medical impairment. The last time these guidelines were adopted by the board was 1996, and really at that time they just adopted uh, a set of guidelines that had been in the works since the mid-80s. Um, the new guidelines are in first edition. They are in draft. 
Uh, and I did present uh, with my partner, Christian Sison, a lengthy webinar at the beginning of this month. And the, it's archived on our website uh, with subtitling or captioning, so you can just read along if you don't want to uh, blast the volume at work. I strongly recommend you check that out if you're interested in how the uh, independent medical evaluator is to follow the guidelines, what the guidelines say, how they apply to various injury types, and then we actually go through a couple practical examples of how a scheduled loss of use would be affected in terms of dollars and cents uh, under the new uh, impairment guidelines. The new guidelines apply to current cases, but only after the adoption of, on January 1, 2018, which really means no uh, scheduled loss of uses will follow the, the new guidelines by IME physicians until January 2nd, 2018. Uh, the only changes are how scheduled loss of uses are impaired the number of weeks per body part are not changed, uh, how everything is calculated, how everything is named. So if you're familiar to the with the old chart, nothing is changing your old chart and maximum number of weeks still applies for every body part. However, the way the evaluating physician is going to assess permanent residual disability for a scheduled loss of use body part, and that's a mouthful, that's a lot of different topics in there, uh, is going to change. It's going to follow uh, this formula. The uh, IME physician is going to be expected uh, to take a complete medical history from the claimant, to review the intake form that's going to be promulgated by the Workers' Compensation Board, listen to the claimant's complaints, perform a physical examination, review all the medical records and narratives that have been provided, review any additional materials, which could be things like surveillance videos, a personnel file, etc., and then go through this categorization, range of motion, strength, pain, special consideration evaluation, and then uh, come up with a uh, scheduled loss of use uh, uh, impairment. The loss of earning power will be assessed or added by the workers' compensation law judge in cases where that is appropriate, and not every case is appropriate for that, of course, uh, to determine how a scheduled loss of use is uh, established. Uh, in the old days, the scheduled loss of use was essentially a range of motion finding plus some special considerations. The IME physician was expected to be familiar with the board's disability duration guidelines. And again, these images that you're seeing on your screen right now, which are showing the knee and leg body parts and uh, uh, different various defects in either flexion or extension being translated into percentage loss of use. That's how this has been done for 21 years. That is changing now. And the uh, uh, IME physicians will be expected to adopt to that. The way uh, loss of wage earning capacity has been evaluated, and again, I reference back everyone to our uh, recent webinar on loss of wage earning capacity is not changing. In injuries that involve the nervous system, cervical spine, thoracic spine, lumbar spine, uh, the evaluating physician is still expected to use the severity ranking and impairment charts as well as supplemental tables to come up with the uh, disability ranking under the loss of wage earning capacity analysis. That has not changed. The only thing that has changed um, is going to be the way uh, schedule loss of use. Again, hand, finger, feet, toes, knees, elbows, shoulders, everything essentially that's not the spine or psychiatric or neurologic injuries are going to be established and evaluated in the board file. Um, there are times when our IME gets precluded and it's uh, unfortunately not as rare as we would like it to be. Remember, you, the carrier, the employer, the self-insured, still have the right to cross-examine the claimant's treating physician, even if our IME physician's report has been precluded. 
Of course, our adversaries prepare for their IMEs. If you go on YouTube and have a little fun with this, this is a fun thing to do with your family when they're asking what you do for a living, go on YouTube and, and, and uh, type in terms how to ace your IME, how to fool your IME, or IME tips, and you'll find law firm after law firm, attorney after attorney, uh, giving information to claimants on how they can best present themselves in the, as the most disabled. So they're preparing for this stuff. Um, of course, our in, uh, on the other side, we can be prepared. We can provide a really good cover letter to our IMEs and really get a great defense IME. What can I do about missed IMEs? Well, under Section 19 in New York, uh, failure to attend an IME is grounds to cut off benefits. However, in my experience, the workers' compensation law judges generally will not approve a cutoff of benefits until the claimant has missed at least two IMEs. So what we tell clients is, hey, if they've missed the first IME, maybe they have a valid reason, usually they do not. Uh, they missed that first IME, go ahead, automatically reschedule it, document that they missed that first IME, uh, and then if they miss the second IFE, IME, our recommendation is to typically file an RFA-2 to stop benefits uh, in that case. Um, so that's what we do typically about missed IMEs. Can you do surveillance at the IME? Absolutely, what a wonderful place to pick up the claimant for covert surveillance. You know where they're gonna be at a certain date and time. So absolutely getting surveillance on the way to or from the IME is useful and absolutely allowed. Uh, can we force a functional capacity evaluation? Under the new scheduled loss of use guidelines, uh, the draft guidelines, which will come into effect in January of 2018, the IME evaluator is requested to uh, consider things like strength in their testing, uh, but no specific test methodology is offered or recommended to the evaluator. Uh, for example, uh, although grip strength uh, or arm strength is part of the evaluations for elbow, hand, and wrist injuries, there is no recommendation or requirement that the uh, IME physician use any specific testing equipment like a grip dynamiter or any other testing equipment. Uh, we do think that a functional capacity evaluation can be very useful, although it can be very expensive as well, in establishing the claimant's actual functional ability or loss or lack thereof. Um, the IME physician can recommend or request that a functional capacity be evaluation be conducted. And the way to do this uh, is essentially to have the IME in the cover letter say, dear uh, evaluating physician, do you think a functional capacity evaluation would be useful in determining uh, the claimant's overall functional ability, strength, loss of range of motion, et cetera? And if the IME physician says, yes, I do, and in fact, I don't want to do this impairment evaluation until I get a functional capacity evaluation, you can then use that statement to require that the claimant uh, submit to a functional capacity evaluation, which I think can be quite objective if they are performed well. Um, so yes, our IME physician can request a, a functional capacity evaluation, and then that's how we can shoehorn them into being required to go. Uh, I would just remind you that there is no way we can force them to go to a functional capacity evaluation unless our doctors requested it and the judge wanted them to do it. All right, uh, testimony of the claimant's physician and our physician really comes down to their qualifications and the contents of their report. And in fact, that's my job as your defense counsel to make sure that A, their qualifications are on point and up to date and valid and useful and they're credible as a witness, but then also to make sure that they don't depart from the contents of their report 
under cross-examination. So many of my adversaries' cross-examinations present the IME doctor with hypothetical questions that they can't possibly answer. They start off these questions usually like this. Doctor, if you knew that the claimant was in pain every day and could barely get out of bed, would that change your... And they ask these big hypothetical questions and they end, they end with a quote, comma, would that change your opinion? Or if you knew that, and then they state some completely outrageous, non-factual thing they made up and then ask the doctor to agree with it or ask the doctor if it would change their opinion. Your defense counsel should be there objecting to those types of hypothetical questions. All right, uh, thank you for sticking with us. Today's, is, uh, today's webinar is pre-recorded. Next week, I am back here live for our New Jersey webinar, which I will be presenting with Dr. Jennifer Yanow, who is a pain management physician in New Jersey. And it will also be on the topic of independent medical examinations and second opinion examinations, but uh, looking at it from a New Jersey viewpoint. In November, please join us. Uh, uh, I'll be here with my senior associate, Tim Kane. Uh, talking to you about how to evaluate cases for permanency exposure in New York. Please join me for that. Today's webinar, unfortunately, is not live. I had to pre-record it due to a pre-existing commitment, uh, but I will try to answer your questions. If you have any questions following this webinar, please feel free to email me. Okay, everybody, have a great week.